to the Power of Sports podcast, where the jocks and the geeks go together like peanut butter and chocolate. In this episode, we learn from Dave Newhouse, a former columnist for the Oakland Tribune whose journalism career spanned five decades. Dave is the author of 18 books about sports and has two more on the way. It was a pleasure to learn from him about his new book called The Yankee Way, including great stories about Yankee heroes like Yogi Berra, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, and others, and how sports continues to capture the American attention, how sports have changed since he began covering them in the 1960s, and why he thinks sports held power then and hold power now. Yes, hello, Dave. How are you? Is this Aaron? Yes, it is. How are you today? I'm very grateful to you for taking some time to be on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, it's nice of you to have me here, believe me. <laughs> I think we're going to have some fun here. And tell me, first of all, Dave, how George Selleck, because I know George now for about 10 years, and he's been a really good person to me, and we've done some work together, and he's just been a great mentor and friend to me over the years. So I'm just curious how you guys met. I saw him play. I'm 83. Mm-hmm. And so when I was a a boy growing up on the peninsula in Menlo Park, George played at Stanford. And in those days, you could just ride your bike over and get a ticket or go in. I don't know if they let kids under 12 free. They did for football games. But anyway, I went over and I watched him play, never thinking that we'd ever have a, a relationship. And years passed and years passed. And somebody who played basketball at Stanford after George it might have overlapped a little bit, was someone I knew, a fellow by the name of Tom Crawford. Uh-huh. And he said he was going to have lunch one day with George Selleck and would he like, would he like me to come? And I thought, oh my God, that might be fun. And that's how it started. And from there, we've entertained each other, our wives. And it's funny that you build a friendship with a, of a sports idol of your youth, right? That's going to happen, but that's how it happened. Absolutely. And I look forward to talking more about your life in sports here. And I always like to start these shows at the beginning and asking my guests about how they were first attracted to sports or how they got involved in sports. So what was it? What Was there a sport? And I, going to these Stanford basketball games sounds like it was an inspiring moment in your life. But what else? Were there other teams you watched or did you play a particular sport growing up? When I was growing up, there was only one major league team in the area, and that was the 49ers. And they started in 1946 when I was eight. So my dad, we lived in Menlo Park, which was about a 30-mile distance between. In those days, the freeways weren't big. So it took about an hour to get to San Francisco. And we go to Kezar Stadium, and I got to watch these early 49ers play. I didn't live too far in Menlo Park from Palo Alto, where Stanford was. And in those days, You could go to a Stanford football game and be admitted for free if you were 12 or under. And so I did, and they would put us in the worst location, but it's the best location because it's free. And after the games, you could walk down to the field area, and players would come off the field on their way to the locker room, and they would stop and talk with fans. So after a couple of Stanford games, I went down and a couple of players stopped and talked to me. 
one patted my head. And that's how my relationship with sports began. I didn't know where it was going to take me. I had a, some success as a high school athlete, as a shot putter. Uh, at Menlo Athlete in high school, I, I held the record one winter. You know, I set the record at the tail end of my junior year. And so I had the record till the next track season. Then eventually was passed by Bob uh, Atkinson, who was much more talented than, than I was, and went on to put the shot for Stanford. Yeah, I had a very athletic background. I put the shot into college, but I wasn't very good. And so it was time to focus on other things. So I dropped out of college for a good while because I went into the military in the late 50s not knowing what I really wanted to be, I thought maybe a sportscaster. I just wasn't sure. And I was on a base in France where we had a newspaper, and they needed somebody to write sports, and I was working in special services, mostly surrounding sports. And they said, why don't you do it? So I refused them twice, and I thought, I've been in the Air Force two years, and I've got two more years to go. What am I going to do when I get out? So I always had good writing assignments in school. That was the one thing I could do. I guess I was full of Blarney or something. But <laughs> so I started writing all these sports articles. They gave me a column, and I didn't know what a column was. They had to explain it to me. I'd read them, but I didn't know what the terminology was. So for about two years, I wrote. it was all for free. Uh, but I was gaining a, a vast amount of experience because I would write a column and I'd write about our base teams, which are very good, and even intramurals. So by the time I got out of the Air Force in 1961, I went back to college and I had a grasp of what my future was going to be. I was going to major in journalism. So I owe the Air Force everything. It really turned my life around. How interesting. That's so interesting. And it strikes me as something that you shared with Charlie, because of course he was in the military as well. And I was, as I was reading your latest book called The Yankee Way, which you co-authored with Mr. Charlie Silvera before he passed away, may he rest in peace. It occurs to me that you both had that same experience of being in the military and sports were uh, an important part of that experience. It sounds like for both of you, for him playing and for you writing. Yeah. Well, of course, Charlie Silvera was in the military during World War II, which was a little more grievous, except that he was in special services, and he was assigned, like a lot of ball players, to entertain the troops. So he didn't see any combat, but the, the military grounded him, I, I would imagine, in a certain way, helped him mature a lot as from a kid into a young adult, and therefore be, became a viable person to reach the major leagues. Yes. Um, so I think in that way we were the military grounded both of us in different ways, in different parts of the world. He was in Hawaii, I was in France, and uh, he was in the Army, and I was in the Air Force. But it's, it, it, it certainly set our career straight. And Dave, I, I love this book. I really do. It's just chock full of this judicious prose, and it's really a complete breeze to read. And to me, it's equal parts funny and honest. And of course, it's this amazing story. You have this professional catcher, Charlie Silvera, who saw little playing time for the Yankees, but he was good enough to back one of, if not the best catchers of all time, Yogi Berra, on a team that was arguably the best team that ever was. 
So I, I wonder if you could tell the listeners about how you met Mr. Silvera and, and then also this amazing run of World Series titles that his Yankee teams went on in the late 40s and early 50s. I met Charlie almost through accident. There would be things that happening in the world of sports where maybe you, at times you might have to reach out to a scout. And Charlie was living in the Bay Area, and he was indeed a scout for most of his professional baseball life. He played, he coached, he managed. So there were, might have been a few times that I'd reached out to him. And then I read one day, he was the oldest living Bay Area player at 91. My gosh, he played for the Yankees. He played with Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle and Billy Martin and Yogi Berra and Casey Stengel was the manager. So I approached him, I said, Charlie, there's something here. The Yankees, I'd done some research, and they were the only team ever to win five straight World Series from 1949 through 1953. And even Ruth and Gehrig's Yankee teams or Jeter and Rivera's Yankee teams never strung together five straight World Series championships. Yeah, it's so almost said, improbable today to think of this possibly oh, happening. Yeah, with expansion and free agency, I doubt that you'll ever see that again. Right. But So he lived in Millbrae, which is less than an hour's drive from my home in Oakland. And so we started on this course. And it took 18 months to do because Charlie, as an old person, he had his medical issues. Mm-hmm. And so he wasn't always you know, able to step up to the bat, so to speak, to do an, an interview. But he he was a willing participant. After about 20 to 25 interviews, somewhere in there, we had put together enough for a book. But it also required me to read books. I would try to read something on Joe DiMaggio before I interviewed Charlie or Mickey Mantle or Yogi Berra, Phil Rizzuto, Casey Stengel. Then I would write out questions and interview Charlie. Was he the most lucid? Perhaps not. Was he the most uh, eager? Yes. He was. Yes, that comes across. Yeah, Absolutely. he was very eager to help out, which is a very nice person. And his life still was baseball. When you're old and you're housebound, uh, you watch a lot of sports on TV, and he, he would watch sports from morning into the evening, especially if the Yankees were playing. This was who he was, and he didn't try to be someone he was not. He was very true to himself, and that way he still had his ear to the game. And so I wasn't interviewing somebody who was a hermit from baseball. He was still very active in terms of his love of the game. Absolutely, yeah, and that absolutely cr- comes across Dave, and I loved some of the comparisons that he made to some contemporary players whose baseball I've been able to watch myself. So it gave me a kind of impression about what things were like back when he played compared to now. And I'm curious for those comparisons, but I also wanted to talk a little bit first about this idea of the Yankee way and this choice of a title, because it does strike me that Silvera was sometimes called Yogi's caddy because he backed up Yogi Berra. And I think that his significance obviously wasn't necessarily always on the field, but it does seem like he was an important member of the Yankees in the sense that he helped them reproduce these Yankee traditions. And so is that kind of why you chose the title, The Yankee Way, this focus on there being something about the Yankees way of doing things that's different from other clubs? He kept saying this was the way we used to do things. And he kept repeating that. 
Aaron, and I thought, that's pretty catchy, the Yankee way. Now, I have to be totally honest. Uh, I did not know there was a previous book written in the early part of this century by Willie Randolph, the Yankee second baseman, was sure. called the Yankee way. I didn't know that. Otherwise, I, I would have strived for another title. But Charlie, he harped on this enough to where I thought that might make a nice the way that the Yankees do, do things. With all, of, with all apologies to Willie Randolph, I'm sorry for the duplication. But I, like I say, I didn't know of his, of his book until I was finished with this one. So there, the Yankees, what ways were they that the Yankees had that were different from baseball? They didn't let, according to Charlie, the Yankees didn't let anyone step on their tradition, step on their toes. Uh, yes. They knew they had a good thing going, and winning was the only thing that motivated them. Yes, they had talent, but the Red Sox did too, mm-hmm. and the Tigers did too. But they, the Yankees were terribly focused, and, and they said they would tell young players, now you're up here, you're not here to fool around and to ruin our reputation. You're here to contribute to championships. That's what we're all about. And so it it was like a credo that was passed down and you had to honor it or you would be gone. And some players partied too much and took it too lightly. They shipped them out. And back then too, the Yankees spied on one another. They had a general manager named George Weiss and he had people in the scoreboard or whatever. He had people... (laughs) spying on the Yankees to make sure that they held on to this tradition and and they didn't sully it. And so everybody knew you could party. If you were Mickey Mantle and Hank Bauer and Billy Martin and Whitey Ford, you could party. But you didn't want to let it carry itself into the clubhouse, into the dugout, onto the field. So there was a, a strict decorum there. And so even though the Yankees were great, remember, they got their players from everywhere. Roger Maris was with the St. Louis Browns, and they went after him. And they picked up pitchers who were not Hall of Fame pitchers. It's amazing, with with all those five straight championships, only one of their pitchers is in the Hall of Fame, and that's Whitey Ford. Mm -hmm. Allie Reynolds is not there, Vic Rashi is not their Tommy Byrne. They had some great closers in Joe Page. They didn't make the Hall of Fame, but there are a lot of Yankee everyday players who are, who are in the Hall of Fame. And I guess you could say they they carried the freight. How interesting. And you tell some great stories in this book about all these Yankee greats. You mentioned Mickey Mantle and Phil Rizzuto and Casey Stengel, Billy Martin. In the interest of time, I really want to just focus on a couple of players, if that's all right with you. And of course, I don't want to give away the rest of the book anyway, because I think people should buy it. And I'd like to start with Yogi Berra, if that's all right. Can you tell me the story about Yogi Berra and how he got his nickname? I never knew until I read your book. I always thought that the cartoon character came first and he was nicknamed after it, but so it sounds like that's not how things went. Yeah, I'm not quite sure, even after write, writing the book, how Yogi became Yogi. I think it was a derivative of yoga, or not that he was a yoga master or anything like that, but he just looked like 
a character named Yogi or Yoga or something like that. No, the cartoon character of Yogi Bear came, came afterwards. But Yogi was a funny-looking guy. He was very short with very long arms, very powerfully built. And he had to go through a lot of nicknames. Some people would call him a gorilla and stuff like that. Not opponents, but you didn't want to carry it too far because he'd hit one 400 feet and ruin your life for the day. It's hard to understand what's real and what's fiction about him because all these Things that he supposedly said that Joe Garagiola, the broadcaster, popularized. Who knows if they're true or not, but it made Yogi out to be this guy that read comic books in, in the clubhouse, wasn't interested in the day's best-selling books, and he just was interested in winning three MVPs, which he did, league yeah. MVP. And, and I love that story that you tell in the book about Yogi Berra and a teammate both reading at the same time. The, the teammate, I think, was reading a medical book to become a doctor. Dr. Bobby Brown, it's exactly true. Yogi, as you alluded to, Aaron, might be the greatest catcher of all time. Certainly the most overworked catcher. Poor Charlie. Charlie had talent. He hit 282 as a Yankee for his career. He didn't get up a lot. And he had a gun for an arm. He could... That's why they kept him around. He knew pitchers. He was like a, a coach in the bullpen. And he, he could play. The only problem was one year the Yankees had 20 double headers and Yogi caught both ends of 19. Wow. So he, he didn't get on the field very much. With all their World Series success, he had two at-bats, did Charlie, and made outs. But you know what? They, cons- they considered him a big part of the club. The Yankees had a lot of catchers in the in their bulk in their farm system. Elston Howard is the guy who eventually replaced Charlie Johnny Blanchard. There were Gus Triandos. The, the Yankees were replete with catchers in in their their farm network. And Charlie held them off. He uh, held them off because there was one time Yogi got hurt. He was going to be out for a significant amount of time. I think Charlie hit 323 during that that time. He didn't hurt the team. He never really hurt them defensively, and he helped this time offensively. So even though he didn't get up a lot, he hit the ball well, and the Yankees kept winning. The Yankee way was still in place. Yes, indeed. And I, I wonder if that may be part of why he was kept on the club. And obviously he was successful when he did play. But like you say, he was part of this Yankee way, and he really seems like bought into this Yankee way. And that must have been something that Casey Stengel appreciated and, and wanted to keep around, wouldn't you think? I, I think so, too. He didn't make waves. He wasn't a troublemaker. He would do things like he would drive Mickey Mantle to the ballpark when it's Yankee Stadium, like every day. Mickey already, in, early in his career, was injured a lot and taped up a lot and wrapped up a lot. And so driving a good distance wasn't something he needed to do. So he didn't live too far from Charlie in this period of the time. So Charlie would take him to the park and drive him right up to the player's entrance so Mickey could go in without having to go through crowds. And then Charlie would go park the car and come back to the player's entrance. And people would just more or less let him go in because he didn't have a big name. He was just on the team. But he did 
things like that to show that he was a person of high character. He was a good family man. So he wasn't going to make waves. He wasn't going to, to be in trouble. It's really funny. When I asked Tony La Russa, who was just coming back to manage the White Sox, who were, who were in first place now, if he would write the forward for the book, he agreed to do it. And, you know, and he, Tony was just a utility player. And um, so he looked at Charlie's career, and he came to the conclusion that, gosh, would you rather be a regular on a team that never gets to the World Series like poor Ernie Banks? <laughs> the Cubs never got to the World Series Yes, Ernie Banks. Or would you take be, uh, being a reserve on a dynastic team, a team that wins championships? And Tony said for the experience of it and learning how it's done, he would much prefer the, the latter, to be a reserve on a championship team, which he was with the A's, you know, yes. during the early 70s when they won three World Series in a, in, a, in a row. By the way, if I could just add this, Aaron, when you ask someone to do the forward, you send them the manuscript, and you, you don't know what they're going to read and what they're going to write. But when he sent back his manuscript, it took a while, and I was nervous about that because it was getting close to spring training. But he sent it back, and I read it, and I thought to myself, you know what? I think he read the manuscript. Now, Tony has a law degree, and he's passed the bar. Sure. But he's chosen to play baseball rather than play lawyer. And there's a thing that he s said in his manuscript that made me believe that uh, he read the manuscript thoroughly, and it was something that was in the middle of the book, maybe in the back, kind of, if it says two-thirds, back in the middle third of the book, that the Yankee strategy, when they would face the Brooklyn Dodgers in the World Series, was, most importantly, to keep Jackie Robinson off base, mm -hmm. which they were able to do. Jackie had low batting averages against the Yankees in October. But Tony had to read that in the middle of the book to, to realize that. It hadn't been spoken about before that section of the book, which I really appreciated. It made me feel that he gave it 100%. As I mentioned earlier, it's a, a breeze to read. I'm not surprised that he read the whole thing at all for, for that reason alone. And you know, I'm curious if we could talk a little bit about the relationship between Barra and Silvera, because it seems like, as you mentioned, Mr. Silvera was a great teammate to Mickey Mantle and others, but it seems like what he went through would have been quite difficult as well. And yet it seems like he was really the consummate professional and a, a great friend to Yogi Berra as well, even though Yogi Berra was effectively taking, quote unquote, his playing time. They became the best of friends. And that relationship continued throughout their lives. Charlie used to say we were the best of friends on, on the team, and we also had the best-looking wives. Yes, so, I love that part, yeah. And when Yogi would come out to manage or come out to travel with his wife, her name was Carmen, and uh, Charlie's wife's name was Rose. They were married 70 years. Yeah, they would get together, and they would stay with the Silveras if they were coming out here. It's a beautiful friendship, but you don't always see that. Joe Montana and Steve Young weren't the best of friends when they played because there's competition. That's right. Uh, whoever it is. Remember the quarterbacks of the Rams, both in the Hall of Fame, Bob Waterfield and Norm Van Brocklin. One was going to run the other one off. 
because mm-hmm. one well, only one quarterback can play. You can see with the 49ers now with Garoppolo and the young rookie, you can't play them both. You, maybe there's a way uh, you can weave one in for a short amount of time because the rookie can run. But it's hard to have a relationship when you're competing for the same thing. But Charlie and Yogi rose above it. Yes, it certainly seems that way from what I read in the book. And I, again, I think you bring those stories to life with, with the way that you write the book. And it, it's really an incredible story of a team that, that wins and wins and wins and wins. And also there's this culture that's reproduced over time. And I think it still exists, wouldn't you say? Would you agree that the Yankee way is still something that, that exists? I think it does. Like I say, with expansion and free agency, winning five World Series in, in a row is a pipe dream. Mm-hmm. But the Yankees still have that legacy. You know, it was really interesting. When Charlie passed away two years ago at the age of 94, when they interred him in the same cemetery as Joe DiMaggio, his idol, his boyhood idol, same day Charlie was laid to rest, the Yankees wrapped up another playoff appearance. Yeah, it just—it's funny that connection between them. But the Yankees still are baseball's greatest legacy. I think I, I don't know if any team in recent times have come close to that type of dominance. It's just there's a lot of good teams, but it's five five in a row is awfully hard to do because there's so many teams. But I think the Yankees with their pinstripes. That's very, it's a very significant thing about their appearance. And all the free agents, when they become available, they go to New York. That's right. They all want to be a Yankee. Yeah, and I have a little bit of an experience learning about that myself because I lived in Japan for a long time and I had the good fortune of meeting Hideki Matsui one time. And that was really his dream. I was reading his autobiographies, which were published in Japanese. And that was a dream of his was to play for the Yankees. And Ichiro had come over here, and of course, Nomo and these other Japanese players had come over to the States to play and did very well here, but none of them played for the Yankees. There wasn't a superstar Japanese player who had played for the Yankees. And so for Matsui, who is known in Japan as, what's the best way to put it? He's Ichiro's a bit more of an iconoclast, and, and Matsui is more of the, I guess, the Charlie Silvera type, who doesn't make waves and is, is, a really, is known as a really upstanding human being. And so I think he wanted to be part of the Yankee way. And reading this book brought back those memories, and it really made a lot of sense to me. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit about Joe DiMaggio as well, because growing up here in the Bay Area, which you and I both did, of course, Joe DiMaggio is a local uh, kid as well. And it was it struck me as really interesting to read your chapter about him, because you're so focused on looking his best and, and playing his best, which is, I think, also part of the Yankee way. There's this you know, rule against having facial hair once you join the Yankees. What do you think of this connection between looking one's best, carrying yourself in, in a certain way, and playing one's best? Do you think that is part of the Yankee way as well? I don't think so. That was a, a period of time now, a younger listenership, Aaron, to your show, might not know the phrase big man on campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that was a phrase, I think, back in the, the 50s where the star quarterback was like the best-known person yes. on campus. And Joe DiMaggio was the best-known man on the Yankee campus. Uh, and players catered to him. But 
<clears throat> when I found out, I had met Joe DiMaggio, and he came to a dinner. I helped host a celebrating baseball in Oakland a number of year, years ago. <laughs> he, he was uh, fastidious. He was an impeccable dresser. Mm-hmm. And he looked. He was trim. He looked good in his clothes. And he would show up at the clubhouse, not only in a suit and tie, but he'd have a special overcoat. He looked like the arts, as they say. He was just like a male model. And he carried himself in a way. He, he told Charlie one day, the reason I put out as hard as I can every day is because there could be someone seeing me for the first time. And I, I don't want to let anybody down. Yes. So you never saw DiMaggio throw a fit on the field. He was never uh, charging the pitcher on a close pitch or anything like that. The only time it ever happened was in the World Series against the Dodgers, I think, 47. He hit one to the farthest part of Yankee Stadium. I think it was 402 feet in the left center. And this outfielder named Al Gianfrido, nobody ever remembers that name, he made the catch for Brooklyn mm-hmm. against the wall. And as DiMaggio was rounding first, he, Gianfrido made the catch, and DiMaggio kicked dirt. They got a picture of him kicking dirt. And that's the only emotion he ever showed. His brother, hmm. Dominic DiMaggio, was the center fielder for the Red Sox. That's and they didn't hug each other on, on the field. They might get together afterwards for, for dinner. But Joe was stoic. He didn't show much emotion. He just even he just beat you with his brilliance. Yes, he did, didn't he? And 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 I'd love to talk about that brilliance because I think his hitting streak, which is historic and probably will never be broken. DiMaggio, as you write, had a really keen eye at the plate. And he hit 361 total homers in his career and only struck out 369 times, which is just it's just incredible. And what I found most interesting and learned from your book is that this was all despite the fact that he apparently did very little conditioning in the offseason, and he was a chain smoker. He was a born hitter in the Coast League when he was a teenager playing for the hometown San Francisco Seals. He hit in 61 straight games. And he back in... He was a right fielder, and it was the Yankees who made him a center fielder. Yes, he was a phenom. Yes, he was a phenom. But yes, his career probably would have been better without the tobacco. But also, remember back then, he wasn't in combat, but he took time out for the war. That's right. So there were negatives working against him and negatives that he brought on him himself. He could have had a much longer career. I don't know what the smoking would have done. And the big thing about Joe was he he didn't train in the off-season, people said. And it's not like today everybody going to the gym. Back then, athletes, they didn't train as religiously as they do now, year-round. And it was a different time, but just with that talent, not many balls went over his head in the outfield, and he can go from first to third, maybe not quite as fast as Willie Mays, but as efficiently. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of parts of his game that were extraordinary and led to the argument, who was the best center fielder in New York history? Was it DiMaggio? Was it Mantle? Was it Willie Mays? Was it Duke Snyder? Mm-hmm. I mean, this argument always goes on and on. 
But Joe DiMaggio was a very special talent. It's too bad his career couldn't have happened without the war years. Life's like that. Indeed. I also love this story that you tell about DiMaggio telling Charlie Silvera to tell the staff of a restaurant that was owned by the mafia that he was from northern Italy, even though Silvera's family was from Portugal. And and, and then you have this other story about the, the Yankee players picking up Phil Rizzuto's tiny Austin Healy car and turning it sideways in between two regular sized cars so he couldn't leave Yankee Stadium. But you really bring these memories to life in this book. And so I, I really am grateful to you for writing it and writing it so well. So I'm curious if we could switch a little bit and talk about your career as a journalist. And I think it was uh, 52 years that you were writing, I think 47 of which were for the Oakland Tribune. And you write in this book with Charlie Silvera that in the late 40s and 50s, there were eight daily newspapers. And I know you take great pride in your, your career as a journalist. So I wonder if you can speak to what role you think baseball in particular and also sports in general have played in the newspaper business over the years. Baseball was America's predominant sport. You have to remember back in the early part of last century, there was just baseball. There was no pro basketball. There was no pro uh, football to speak of. There was some semi-pro football. Baseball has always been from the onset America's game. So that's what people focused on. And in that period of time, there was no television. Radio was just even something new to the country's conscience. So newspapers were the best vehicle of information for the country. Imagine today with all the stuff on the internet, people carrying around their own little television sets in their hands. They got instant news just by pressing the right buttons. Newspapers are disappearing. But in New York had eight papers. San Francisco had five. At the time, back at the Chronicle, the Examiner, the News, the Call, and the Bulletin. This is, goes back a long time. But when I was young, there was a Call Bulletin, and there was the News, the, the Examiner, and the Chronicle. So there was this plethora of information that was coming out, and the, the baseball idol stood above the football idol and stood above the basketball idol because the game was more grounded into our consciousness. And so you waited every day for the paper to see how DiMaggio hit or Musial hit or Williams hit or Mantle hit. I waited for the paper every day when I was a boy. Yes. Just as my, my idol was Stan Musial. There was no major league uh, baseball at the time, the early 50s, there was nothing till the Giants came here in 58. So he had the Seals in San Francisco and the Oaks in, in Oakland. Uh, other than that, it was college football. That's all we really had back then. So you would read about Joe DiMaggio and his exploits in New York, Ernie Banks in Chicago, Ralph Kiner in Pittsburgh hitting home runs for the last place, Pirates. But you'd wait every day to get the newspaper to see what your heroes have done. Now, my gosh, it's 24 hours of information nonstop all day long. You're inundated with it. You are. And, and it, it also strikes me as pretty interesting that it was about this heroism. And I think today there is still quite a bit of that. But I, I wonder if it's shifting a little bit as our culture shifts, frankly, because we have... 
sports heroes, but a lot of people that are watching sports are now doing so with a much more self-interested focus on their fantasy sports team, their fantasy baseball team, their fantasy football team, or what have you. And so when they're watching a player, it's what has the player done for their team. And I suppose that that's a different kind of mentality as a fan than, than what it sounds like it was for you. With the pandemic, you know, let's suppose he didn't play last year. Yeah. It was going to be a shortened season, but there were some issues at home with his, I think, twin children and um, worried about, I don't know, contagious illnesses being spread. I can't remember what Posey's reasonings were, but he didn't play. And look at this season, Mike Trout, arguably the best player in the game today, may not play any for the Angels in Anaheim. You just see guys, people sitting out for all kinds of various reasons. It's a different game today. The money, everybody looks at the money, and the money is incredible. What a utility player signs for $4 million a year or something like that. And you think, when I grew up, my God, when Willie Mays got paid $100,000 a year, we thought, that's lights out. Babe Ruth didn't get paid that much. But the money is so available today. And I I think players are overpaid. Yeah, in a way, I I do. I don't know how much money you need to live on. But when Alex Rodriguez signed for $25 million a year, I thought, what if he signed for $18 million? Does it make much of a difference? (laughs) There's so much money being paid today that you're just, you're numb to it. Mm. You really are just numb to it. Do you get the same satisfaction as watching Willie Mays or other players who didn't make 100000 Yeah, you probably do, because you're a fan, and it's your team, and you want them to do well. And Brandon Crawford having the best year of his life at age 34, and you're you're happy for him. He's a good guy. He sure. doesn't make saves. So, yeah, I don't, I, I'm too old to know these guys personally, but I appreciate what they, they do. I, I watch games just like Charlie Silvera watched games. Yes. Yeah. And since you retired from being a full-time journalist, you've still obviously been writing, but how big of a role does sports play in your life now? It's full-time in terms of my writing. With the pandemic, even more so because my wife and I were indoors more than we've been. We might go out to a restaurant with our mask or something like that, but I'm indoors, so I'm watching games. I I tell you, the other Saturday... I watch college football from morning to almost midnight because hmm. I love the local colleges and I want to see what they're doing. I love college sports anyway, but we're all captives of, of our own existence now, so we're, we're more housebound, so I'm watching more sports. But the love is, my love of sport is still as pure. I like writing. The Yankee Wade is just coming out now and there's a couple of other book projects Aaron that I'm close to finishing I did my memoirs I don't know who wants to read them but they're well they're interviews with everybody from Red Grange to Aaron Rodgers and Bronco Nagurski to Marshawn Lynch yeah and so it's all the people I've met there's some interesting very interesting uh, interactions with famous athletes my five minutes of interviewing Chrissy Everett when I was promised an hour she showed up five minutes before her match I had to do this interview I had the questions written out and and it was just 
rapid fire. And she, one time she said to me, I can't believe what I'm telling you what I'm telling you. And I said, <laughs> I fired another question at her in five minutes. I, I, got, it, I got it all done. But I, I wrote it that way. I wrote it that way. What's it like to interview a superstar for five minutes? So I, that's a chapter in the book. There's a lot of interesting if I might say so, chapters. Yes, absolutely. It sounds great. I, I look forward to it. Do you know when that one will be out? I have to find a publisher first. I'm a okay. little closer on a book on Oakland, perhaps getting a publisher. It's a, the dissolution of a sports town called Goodbye Oakland. Two of its three franchises have left and maybe a third yes. will depart as, as well. And so I have a number of Oakland, famous Oakland athletes and managers and coaches who've been interviewed for this book, which is co-written with Andy Dolich, the, the marketing genius behind Billy Ball with the Oakland A's. Andy's a very creative soul, and he talked me into this. So I'm, I don't know when it's going to come out because I'm not sure what the A's are going to do next, but it could be that Oakland, which has 10 major national championships among its three tenants, could be, could be wiped out. It'd be I a know. different kind of a hat trick where instead of getting something, you'll be giving up everything. Yes, it's a, that, that is a, a topic for another day, but I'd love to have you back on the show to talk about that book, because that sounds fascinating. Whenever you like, I've enjoyed it, Aaron, and whenever you need me back, just call. There's a Thank pandemic. You. I'm not going too far. <laughs> yeah, right. Neither am I. So I just want to ask you a couple more questions, if you don't mind, Dave. The, the first is about writing. And then I'll follow up at the end with, with a question I ask everybody on this show about the power of sports to them. But the first question is about writing. You wrote in 2011 when you retired from the Tribune that, quote, vocabulary co consumes a journalist, taxes his verbal skills and beats him up if the perfect word comes to him too late after reading what he wrote in the morning paper. That pressure can be excruciating, something a critical public doesn't always understand, close quote. So I, I love that. I think it really speaks to the internal battle we all have as writers trying to find the best way to express ourselves, but also to do justice to the people we describe while also speaking a language that our readers can understand. And you've obviously been very successful doing that over the years. I think it's 18 books that you've written so far and countless articles and essays. So what is it about sports writing in particular that attracted you and, and kept you interested in this work? It's because in sports... It's ever-changing. Mm. If I was an accountant, yeah, I'd be doing the tax returns of, of different people, but the same tax returns. But when you're in the entertainment field, not every music composition is the same. Not every song is sung the same way. Not every piece of writing is on the same subject. There's, there's such versatility in, in sports writing because you'll see things that you've never seen be, before. There were some things that happened this year that I never thought I'd see. I can't chronicle them right now, but I do sure. remember them happening. And I thought sports is like that. It's the um, thing that pops out of a book and uh, out of a box and says surprise, like the little clown in a box pops up, something new. That happens a lot in, in, in sports. The immediacy of something like, I don't know that I'll ever see another Kirk Gibson home run. Mm -hmm. I, I think I covered the play at Cal when they, they ran through the band, and I, I saw Dwight Clark's catch, made put the 49ers on the map. But the Kirk Gibson home run 
the only time he comes up in the World Series. I know, and it broke was, my heart. I was yeah, nine years old at the time and, and an A's fan. <laughs> with one arm, he hits one halfway up the bleachers. The Dodgers win the game. He limps yeah. around the base. An incredible then, moment, yeah. Yeah, and then goes away. I, I remember the following year, the Dodgers were playing the Giants. And I went up and I just asked him about the impact of that on him. And the guy was a great athlete. He could have been a Hall of Fame receiver. I saw him play at Michigan State. He was the toughest guy. I think he could have been in another Hall of Fame. Hmm. He's not in this one, but he's in the college. He's in college halls of fame. But but that was the most different thing I, I ever saw on a sports field. Nice. Believe me, one day I saw the Cal Crew sink. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. The boat went down against Stanford. There was a big wash. The waters were choppy, and Stanford had the lead and. The wake of their boat, the water washed into the cow boat, and it sank. I've seen <laughs> some strange. I've seen some strange things in in sports, but nothing will ever top Kirk Gibson. I just can't get over that. So, Dave, what is it about sports to you that is so powerful? I, in reading the book that you wrote with Mr. Silvera, it seems like it was baseball was an incredible, if not the most important part of his life after family. And it seems like it helped him in so many ways. But I'm curious what, what it is to you. I think it brings our country a great sense of relief from the every, everyday, I don't want to say nothingness of, of life, but the repetition of life. How do you turn away from it? I guess you could go to the symphony, and I guess you could go to the movies. But with sports, it's always ever-changing. The symphony is always going to play Beethoven's Fifth. It's always going to sound the same, <laughs> different instruments. And you can't ever change Casablanca. It's the same movie it was back in the early 1940s. But sports always gives you something new. Yes. And I think that's what attracts people to it, is the idea that you might see something that you've never seen before. Or you root for something positive like your team and you want to see something good happen to your team so it connects you it connects you it fascinates you it enlivens your life and it it has you asking for more you mm -hmm. want more of, of that that makes it fun to, to that makes it fun to write so it was a good choice of careers Absolutely. I've benefited from it personally, reading your columns and your books over the years, Dave, and I really appreciate you being a guest on the show today. Thank you so much for making time for me. It was a good interview, Aaron, and I'd be glad to come back again if you're ever bereft of guests. No, no, it wouldn't be for that reason, Dave. I, I would welcome your appearance again anytime that you're willing, and I look forward to seeing your two new books when they come out, so please let me know when they do. I will do that, and all the best, okay? Same to you. Thank you so much. Have a nice rest of your day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.